3 John, near the end of your Bible, this is the same John who wrote the other John books, uh, John's Gospel, the same John we, if you were here last week, uh, we heard from as he painted that picture for us of breakfast on the beach with the risen Jesus. It's the same John who wrote the book of Revelation. It's the beloved disciple who leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. And the fact that this is third John does not mean that it's third in importance, nor does it mean that it's third in terms of its timing. Of all the letters that we have in John, this actually might be the first one that he wrote. And so the third has any, nothing to do with uh, nothing to do other than the fact that it is third in the canon of the New Testament. And so when these books and manuscripts were compiled, this letter ended up being third in line. It's a letter of both commendation and concern. It's a letter where John speaks to things that were going on in the life of the early church, things that were going on in the life of his personal friend Gaius. Now, we know nothing about Gaius, we don't really need to know anything about Gaius specifically. There were lots of Gaiuses in the New Testament. It was a very common name like Mike might be a common name in our society. What we do know is that Gaius was a close brother in the Lord. That He was probably converted under John's ministry. John calls him one of his children, one of his children who is walking in the truth. You'll hear that in just a moment. And of course, He's one of four men that are contained in this letter. There's John, of course, who wrote it, Gaius, who he's writing to, Diostrophes, and Demetrius. The timing of this letter, this is all for the sake of introduction before we read it, obviously. The timing of this letter is near the end of the first century. And so we are about 50 years or so after Jesus has died risen from the grave, and been ascended into heaven. And John likely wrote this letter to Gaius from his home base in Ephesus as he seeks to encourage the early first century church. Okay, with all that as introduction, let's jump in to the book of Third John. I love this little book. Those of you who have been around for a while, uh, we actually looked at a passage in this book some seven years ago, and so you might remember some of that, but its relevance for our ministry today is all the more. Let's stand together, if you would, out of honor of God's Word. I'm going to read the third letter of John. Listen as I read. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do. In all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these 
that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. And so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want who want to, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I began my sermon a couple weeks ago with some names, names of those who had been spoken of by Time Magazine as a hundred, or some of the a hundred of the most influential people in our society. Well, this morning I want to begin with a few names again. Jeffrey Rush, Julianne Moore, Ed Harris, Renee Zellweger, John Brolin, and William Macy. What do all those people have in common? It's a rhetorical question. Do not answer it out loud. If you thought to yourself, well, they're all actors or actresses, I hear that, then, then of course you would be right. If you said they all have been nominated for Academy Awards, if you're one of those award junkies, watchers, then that's pretty impressive that you would know that they've all been nominated for Academy Awards at some point in their career. Even more impressive would be the fact that they've all been nominated for Best Supporting Actor or Actress at the Academy Awards. All those things tie them together, but there is one further thing. All these actors and actresses were supporting actor and actresses in in the year that their counterparts won Best Actress or Best Actor. Now, what's my point in bringing it up? My point is that these folks, the year they were nominated, they didn't win any awards. They were not immortalized on trophies, but their work and their performance, the year that they were nominated, were no doubt instrumental in bringing about the success of those whom they worked with. Would you agree? 
Would you agree that you can't probably win best actor or best actress in a motion picture unless your supporting actor or actress is pretty good? That's what I want us to be thinking about this morning. That's where I want our thoughts to go from this brief little letter of 3 John. You see, that's what I think we see in 3 John. And that's what the Lord wants to challenge us with again today. Two points. Two points this morning. The first is a challenge, and the second is an encouragement that fuels the challenge. We're going to spend most of our time on the challenge, and it's simply this. Like Gaius, grab a hold of a gospel rope. Like Gaius, speaking to the church, I'm speaking to you, brothers and sisters, grab a hold of a gospel rope. And we all know from experience, particularly us as parents, that, the imitate, that imitation is a powerful thing for good or for bad in one's life. In the same way, throughout the New Testament, imitation is one of the means that God brings about our spiritual growth. As we rub up against one another, we rub off on one another. Sometimes that's a bad thing. Hopefully in the church of Jesus Christ, it's a good thing. Over and over again, Paul tells the church, not arrogantly, but authoritatively, imitate me, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. The writer of the Hebrews tells the church in a humbling passage for, for leaders, for pastors, for elders, to imitate the faith of your leaders, those who speak the Word of God to you. In the whole chapter of Hebrews 11, this faith chapter as we know it, chronicling the faith of those who have gone before us, does so that we might be instructed, that we might be encouraged, that we might in turn imitate them. And now here in our passage, in this little letter, in verse 11, we're told, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Imitate Gaius. Now, Demetrius is mentioned. Certainly, he has done good. We haven't been told specifically what he did, but the primary commendation in this little letter is for a man named Gaius. So, what did Gaius do? What did Gaius do that's so commendable, that's so worthy to be emulated? Well, he grabbed a hold of gospel ropes. Now, obviously, that's a, that's a figurative statement that I have said. Let me explain. That phrase, holding the ropes, comes from a man named William Carey. Many of you know his story. Some of you probably have never heard the name William Carey. William Carey was an impoverished English shoemaker in the 18th century, and he's now designated in history books as the father of modern missions. William was converted as a teenager. He became a pastor in England, and he became convinced 
that foreign missions was the central responsibility of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, that's hard for us to believe. Of course it is. But believe it or not, in the 18th century English church, it was thought by many that the great commission that Jesus gave to his apostles to go and make disciples of all nations was just for them and was not for the church of Jesus Christ for all ages, in all times. And so William Carey said, no, we are the church. We must hold the ropes. William Carey spent the majority of his life serving the Lord. Moving on from England, and moving to India from 1793 to his death in 1834. Before he went, as he was casting this vision at home in his church, he described the need for rope holders. He said this, figuratively speaking, that as he repelled into the gold mines of India, into this place where there were people upon people upon people just waiting to know the Lord, just waiting to understand the gospel. As he repelled into the gold mine that was India, he needed someone to hold the rope for him. He needed someone at the top to support him in the ways that he went. That is the meaning of holding the ropes. That's what Gaius did here, and that's what we're called to do as well. Not everyone is called to stand up and to preach. Not everyone is called to stand up and teach. Not everyone is called to go to a foreign land, though some of you may be. Some of our children, as hard as that is for us parents to think about, some of our children may be, but we all must be rope holders. We all must grab hold of a gospel rope. John is commending Gaius for walking in the truth, for letting doctrine, for letting the truth of the gospel transform him and turn that into love, love for his brothers, love for strangers in the gospel. John wrote in 1 John, by this we know love that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And indeed, history will tell us that the rapid advance of Christianity in the first and the second century was fueled by the outreach of traveling missionaries, traveling Christian workers, Christian workers who depended upon the generosity, upon the hospitality of Christians in other places, in other cities, 
among people they had never met, but people who they were united to in Christ, people who were willing to hold a gospel rope as others descend into the mine. John says to Gaius, send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. The sense here is send them with what they need. (laughs) Don't just give them shelter. Yes, they may need shelter, absolutely, but food, water, provisions, new sandals, whatever is needed to continue their mission in a manner worthy of God, as you would do for me, do for them. And John gives three encouragements here in this little letter, why Gaius should continue, and they're all found in verses 7 and 8. Look at me, look at it with me for just a moment. Number one, they go out for the sake of the name. These are those who are seeking to make Jesus known. Right, as we bring it into our own context, whether it be church planning, whether it be church strengthening, whether it be evangelism, whether it be mercy ministry, whether it be part-time or full-time, whether it be short-term or long-term, whether it be near or far, whatever they do, wherever they do it, it is all in the name of Jesus. So get behind it. Also in verse 7, they depend on us. They're they're not in this for selfish gain. They do not accept anything from Gentiles. What are unbelievers going to do for them? Nothing. And so get behind them. And then lastly, this is how we become, verse 8, fellow workers for the truth. This is how we participate. William Barclay, the commentator, says, it's not everyone who can be, so to speak, on the front line, but every man by supporting those who are on the front line can make himself an ally of the truth. America illustrated this during World War II. As everything at home, the comforts, The prosperity of the United States was was in a sense put on hold for a time for the sake of the cause. One of my favorite posters from that era encouraged carpooling by saying this, when you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. Join a car sharing club today. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good dose of guilt. Here's another couple ones. Do less so that they'll have enough. Save your cans. Help pass the ammunition. It all comes back to holding a rope, grabbing a gospel rope like Gaius did. This is our call to participation in mission. But how do we do it? How do we here at Ascension, centuries after the first, how do we hold gospel ropes? Well, walking in the truth can take so many different forms, so many different levels. Those who 
set up. You're grabbing gospel ropes. Those who invest in the lives of our covenant kids and teach, you're in a sense grabbing a hold of gospel ropes. But in the spirit of Gaius, in the spirit of William Carey, what else could holding the ropes for us look like? We don't often have traveling missionaries coming through town needing a place to stay. Sometimes we do, and sometimes that's a wonderful opportunity. But our missionaries are out there. They're easily forgotten, aren't they? Just in this past week, just in the past seven days, I received two communications, one from Noel Mann in China rejoicing that winter was finally coming to an end because his heat had stopped working weeks ago. Another was from Jeff David, who we support serving the church in Cuba. He was asking us to pray for the leaders of Cuba and the deteriorating state of conditions on the island because it's becoming increasingly hard to even get food, let alone faithfully disciple the next generation of leaders in the church. These people depend on us. They depend on our prayers. They depend on our encouragement. They depend on our support. So let me give you a couple practical ways that you can grab a hold of a gospel rope like Gaius. Give. Give. Of course, for these people in that I've just mentioned, Noel and Jeff David, we have line items in our budget where we give to their ministries. Your giving, your generosity, your sacrifice helps fuel their ministry and their mission. Keep giving. Start giving if you're not. It's not insignificant. How about our deacons? Next week is the first Sunday of the month, and so we will have our deacons offering. How about grabbing a hold of a gospel rope for our deacons as they descend into the gold mine of mercy ministry in our midst and in our community? Again, giving. Giving of what the Lord has entrusted to us. This week, you're going to receive a letter in the mail good old-fashioned snail mail. You love it. It's going to be from your brothers and sisters here at Ascension, from the Sacred Road team, asking if you would partner with them, if you would hold a gospel rope for them as they spend a week of their summer descending into the gold mine that is the Yakima Reservation, seeking to be the hands and feet of Christ. You received a letter a while back from our pastoral intern, Austin, asking for help so that he can devote more time to ministry. Hold a gospel rope. But it's not all about money. It's also about involvement. Holding all ropes, holding ropes through 
communication, of, of care, of concern, of encouragement. And so let me just plant this little seed. We need a few good men and women to be intentional with our missionaries. We have no missions committee here at this church. We used to years ago, kind of fizzled. But we need some men and women who will hold gospel ropes, who will receive communications from these men and women and and say, hey, church, Ascension, take a break from Seattle suburbia for a moment and recognize that no man is without heat. And we need to pray for him because he's lonely and he's cold, literally. You can be involved. You can hold gospel ropes in that way for the sake of his name, for the sake of his fame. Now, many of you are doing your part. Thank you for what you're doing. Maybe the call for you is not grab a hold of a gospel rope, but hold it more firmly or grab another one if you can, if you have the bandwidth. God's Word encourages us, like Gaius, hold a gospel rope. That's the challenge for us this morning. And we'll close with this brief encouragement. An encouragement that fuels the challenge that I just gave to you. And it's this. We've already sung about this fact, but I'll say it again. Jesus died for narcissists. Praise God, Jesus died for narcissists. That's a big word. I can't wait to see how many kids put that word in that little bubble on the kids' notes. It says, this is a word I don't understand. That's okay. Write it in the bubble, narcissist. Ask mom and dad what it means because you need to know what it means in an age of selfies. Jesus died for narcissists. For all time, this poor soul, Diotrephes, is recorded as someone who, quote-unquote, likes to put himself first. He's apparently a man with significant issues. We don't know much about him, just what's stated here. He doesn't acknowledge the authority of the elders. He doesn't give any hospitality as Gaius does, and even more than that, he's apparently taking it upon himself to kick people out of the church. Because of this, John promises to have words with him when he comes face to face, and we are encouraged not to imitate his example. And yet, I couldn't help feel, as I'm reading this letter, as I'm thinking about Gaius, as I'm thinking about Diotrephes, that I am more like Diotrephes than I am like Gaius. Certainly not to the same degree. I don't want to kick anybody out of this church. But I like to put myself first. I do. Don't we all? I like to cut corners for my comfort. my comfort, not for the sake of gospel advance. And so what to do? What to do? I, I have the call of the gospel before me. I have the failing 
of my own past, of my own heart, what to do? I cling to the one who came for people like me, who died for people like us, people who put themselves first. Don't get me wrong, Jesus is not content to leave me, to leave you in that place of self-absorption. He's not. But he's patient. Oh, he's so patient with us. If you're here this morning and you, you're frustrated at your lack of vision, you're discouraged at your lack of focus on the kingdom of God, don't be discouraged. I'm there with you. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the one who was first, and yet he put himself last. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, starting there, Starting there, I become not, not a narcissist, I become a recovering narcissist. Starting there, I have been given the power to put off the old self, to give sacrificially, to invest intentionally, to grab a hold of a gospel rope. You see, all of us here, going back to the open opening, all of us here are privileged to be in supporting roles, best supporting actor, best supporting actress. Grab a hold of that role. Grab a hold because Jesus died for people like us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this brief personal letter and for the message that it challenges us your people with. Forgive us for our self-centeredness, for our self-absorption, and give us a vision for our neighbors. Give us a vision for others. Give us a vision for the kingdom of God and the good news going out to the ends of the earth, that Jesus might be praised that your kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. This we pray by the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.